Have you started something with the hope that it would lead you somewhere special, even if you didn't exactly know where that somewhere would be? It was back in August of 2008 that I stepped into a commercial kitchen for the first time in many years. At that time, like now, I was a practicing lawyer and I was looking for something different, for something more. And it turns out I found it. The somewhere that I was thinking about when I chopped those first vegetables in 2008 was time in the kitchen. It was knowledge, and it was the potential to spend more time in more kitchens. I've been lucky to do those things, but what amazes me most is the somewhere that I keep finding because of those first steps that I took in 2008. And I've concluded, as I have before on this show, that what is really important that what the somewhere should always be is people. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back. If you're new here, I'm Graham, and this is Cheftimony, my podcast about food. On the show, I talk to chefs and other hospitality professionals, and often to food-loving lawyers as well, and that's really because those are many, many of the people I know, having spent most of the last 20-odd years in restaurant kitchens and in law offices. So, the people thing. In 2008, I was a stagiaire at Bishop's Restaurant in Vancouver. A stagiaire is an intern, basically. My chef and mentor there was the incredibly talented chef Andrea Carlson. As I've said before, when I hear the word chef with a capital C, it is always Andrea who comes to mind first. I'm grateful to call her a mentor and a friend. So let's follow a few degrees of separation, or or of connection, I suppose. Through Andrea, I secured a stage at Fuel Restaurant in Kitsilano in Vancouver back in the day. This was the famed restaurant by Chef Robert Belcham, which went on to become Refuel. Robert, of course, went on to open several other simply awesome restaurants in Vancouver, including Campagnolo on Main Street and that basement bar on the second floor, Camp Upstairs. Do you remember these wonderful places? Did you go I sure hope so, because if you did, you'll have memories of delicious food, and if you were lucky enough to visit Camp Upstairs, Dirty Burger, anyone, you may have had a drink prepared by Cocktail Maestro and sommelier Peter Vanderiep. If you're a longtime listener, you have heard from Peter before, direct from Camp Upstairs, when he joined me on episode 18 of Cheftimony. And Peter is an important person to know for today's episode. But let's loop back to Chef Andrea. After wrapping up her time as executive chef at Bishop's Restaurant, Chef went on to open her own amazing place. This is Burdock & Co. on Vancouver's Main Street, and that opened in 2013. My goodness, it's been almost 10 years already. I was privileged to be a stage and then a real live employed cook at Burdock during a break that I took from the practice of law. What wonderful days those were. Now at Burdock, I met incredible people, both colleagues and guests. And one of these incredible people is Neil Hilbrandt, who is a very talented chef and also an important person to know for today's episode. 
But back to Chef Andrea briefly, after Burdock, she and her partner have opened two more fantastic places, both on Union Street in Vancouver's Chinatown. First is Harvest Community Foods, which is a wonderful noodle bar and an incredible little grocery store where I was lucky to cook as well for a period of time under the leadership of Chef Gabe Meyer. You'll hear a little bit about Harvest and a little bit about Chef Gabe today. Next was Bar Gobo, next for Andrea and her partner. This is a natural wine bar and a 20-seat restaurant just down the street from Harvest. And now to close the circle, as you may have guessed, the team at Bar Gobo is led by GM and sommelier Peter Vanderriep and by chef Neil Hilbrand. And those are the two people you'll hear from today. I sat down with Neil and Peter quite early this summer. As you'll hear, it was still asparagus season, still spot prawn season. And we talked through the menu, the wines, and the whole thing that is Bar Gobo. You'll hear all about a brilliant asparagus dish involving koji, a filamentous fungus, a mold. And koji is the basis of miso and soy sauce and mirin and sake and lots and lots of delicious things. You'll hear us talking about koji and about liquid koji, and Chef Neil is using liquid koji to make an incredibly tasty beurre blanc, a butter sauce. Have you ever tried to make a beurre blanc? It is so delicious, but so finicky. It tends to split very easily, at least in my experience. So you may have wondered whether chefs ever cheat when making beurre blanc. Is there a way to keep it from splitting? And if so, what is that way? Stay tuned, you might find out today. You definitely will find out what ingredient you can ferment so that you get a product that tastes like a forest fire. Yep, that's right. We also dive into the topic of natural wines and the age-old question, what wine should I pair with asparagus? Toward the end of the episode today, you will hear ordering tips from Neil and Peter on how to get the most from your Bargobo dining experience. Very good suggestions, I've got to say. All right, let's get right to it. Here is my talk with Peter and Neil Tableside at Vancouver's Bar Gobo. Neil, let me start the questioning with you. I am not going to ask you what is the best thing on the menu. I'm not going to ask you what I should try, but talk to us, please, about something on the menu right now that you find particularly interesting. And if you don't mention the dish I think about, I'm thinking about, I'm going to ask you about that too. You're going to ask about asparagus. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the asparagus just came on last week because we got our first local shipment of asparagus from Hannibrook from Paul, like, yeah, just a week ago. That is a dish, an iteration of a dish, I guess, that we had last year as well. Did you have it last year? No. Okay. So uh, the first Shiokoji Beurre Blanc dish was, Peter, you're going to have to help me out, I forget. Not potato. Was it asparagus? I don't remember what the first Shiokoji dish was. No, was it asparagus? I can't remember. Uh. So, I don't know. One day I had this idea that if I made a Beurre Blanc, but instead of using like a vinegar reduction to start it, I'd just throw in a bunch of liquid Shiokoji and see what happens. It turned out okay. Uh, my big issue at the beginning was that it was splitting a lot. Right. Uh, the, sorry, but I'm just going to jump in with a bunch of questions. So, sure. you, so first question, liquid shiokoji, how how do you get that? You buy it from the store. Okay, excellent. Because <laughs> I've got some from Koji Fine Foods, and okay. it comes in, like, 
rice form, right? Yeah, it's most seal, of them, most sealed of them in, in rice form. So there is a Japanese company called I I might get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Hanamaruki. Okay. Uh, and they produce like just a liquid version of shiokoji, and I I imagine everything on the bottles in Japanese, which I cannot read, uh, but I imagine they're just like blitzing shiokoji with water and straining it. So you get that okay. same same effect, same umami, same flavors, like all that stuff, but in a, a liquid form, which is uh, interesting. So um, you can do stuff like if I I'll do a fish marinade where I'll do like equal parts uh, shiokoji and oil, and oil, and uh, uh, it works really well. Nice. So yeah, the the the, the, the asparagus dish. I'm already losing my no, no, okay. So that's because I keep asking questions. And my second question, bring us back, I think, to where I cut you off the first time, is splitting. So are oh, you right. are you using the what I always do when I make beurre blanc, which is start with a bit of heavy cream before the butter goes in, which I know some chefs, including pretty sure Andrea, views that as cheating. But yeah, I, yeah, she does. Um, <laughs> I think I did that at Burdock. I think I definitely cheated at Burdock, but maybe I just didn't tell her. Okay. You can just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't for this, but it's it's just a little bit, it was a little bit different. So because we're such a small restaurant, even the idea of having, I didn't have a place to keep it warm. So one day I thought, well, what if I put it into an ISI canister and stuck it in circulator so i mean it changes the sauce a little bit because it goes from like kind of like a more blanc to a, basically a foam right and isi that's the one that you attach the co2 cartridge yeah. to okay yeah, i'm already losing my all right okay well <laughs> well we now got the the burr blanc so we've got liquid yeah. shiokoji we've got maybe some cream maybe not probably not no we've got no cream we've got some butter so we've got a burr blanc and then what's the what's the rest of the dish oh the rest of the dish is pretty simple it's just so blanched asparagus that is uh, finished in our tiny little oven over there. Uh, some toasted buckwheat. And um, this year, which I wasn't doing last year, I made a uh, black garlic vinaigrette that I tossed the asparagus in before I finished it in the oven. Nice. So a, a, little bit of, a little bit of acid to cut through the koji beurre blanc because that is a very, very rich uh, <laughs> sauce. Nice. Yeah. And a bit of the toasted buckwheat for just a crunch. crunch. And yeah. it's a little yeah. nutty, and it kind of yeah. just breaks up things. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I'm actually most interested in, we're changing the menu tomorrow. I uh, fermented a bunch of rhubarb that we just got in last week yeah. with some morita chilies. And I tasted it on Saturday before I put it in the fridge, and it tastes like... How do I describe it? It tastes like a forest fire, honestly, which <laughs> wow. is really cool. Like it's, it, you get a little bit of, it's still a little acidic from the rhubarb, but it's extreme, just three small morita chilies turned it extremely smoky. And I'm going to turn that into a salsa, which uh, is going to go on a spot prawn tostada. So I'm excited oh, to wow. see how that comes together tomorrow. Absolutely. For my listeners and for me, how did you do the fermentation? Like how do you take rhubarb and a few chilies how like it's, practically uh, how do you ferment very it? simple lacto yeah. fermentation so you uh chop up your rhubarb and and you get your chilies and everything and it's a two percent salt ratio yep so you just toss just by, just by weight just by weight yeah. yeah so you toss the rhubarb and the chilies and the salt the salt's going to extract some water from the rhubarb 
And if you're using more watery vegetables or whatever, fruits, you'll, you'll pull a lot more out. And then uh, I have these really cool uh, jar lids that I got off of Amazon, which uh, let gas out but don't let anything uh, in. Ah, so they're, they're just like fermentation lids, which is really good for our space because they're very like a small space. Just let it sit for a few days, taste it, make sure you're not going to kill anyone, and then, uh, <laughs> and away you go. And then in the fridge, and it's good to go. And, yeah, and it's good to go. Love it. Well, Peter, let's bring you in at this point. What are you recommending as pairings uh, now for the asparagus dish? And well, let's start with that, and then I'm going to ask you about the um, the upcoming. Tostada? Is that what that's going to be called? Yeah. yeah. The age-old pairing wine with asparagus question. <laughs> yes. So on the weekend when we put the dish on, the idea, you know, a lot of pairing happens theoretically, right? You think, you know your wines, you taste the food, you don't always get to sit down and taste the dish and the wine simultaneously. So this one we actually did to try and make sure it was right because the first wine that I thought I would pair with did not work. I thought I was going to pair a Verdicchio with it. Uh, Verdicchio kind of, you know, Verdi is green in Italian. We thought it might uh, translate well to the asparagus, which is traditionally uh, a difficult difficult vegetable to pair wine with, especially only having 21 wines by the glass to open up and everything else is too expensive to pair. (laughs) Only 21. Only 21 for 20 seats. But, you know, trying to find the right right wine and what we had currently but we uh decided to kind of do a lateral and we, we were pouring an alsatian white blend from marcel dice with the asparagus that ended up tasting a lot better than the radicchio the radicchio kind of just fell out the asparagus and the sauce the sauce intensity kind of overpowered the wine and so you just were left with a wine that tasted thin and it's a wine that shouldn't taste thin at all it's quite delicious but uh, obviously not suited to the to the dish, so we switched to Marcel Dice uh, Complantation Nature, which is a, a field blend of. Uh, it's kind of cool. It's all thirteen allowable grape varieties in Alsace. Oh wow! Um, he blends them all together, grows them together, makes them together. Uh, it's kind of his philosophy, or the the domain's philosophy for what they do in Alsace. Nice. Now you. you Peter, you know what my wine philosophy, which uh, because I've told you over time, I outsource all of my wine knowledge to people like you who know it, so I don't have to learn this stuff. When I think of Alsace, so here's my newbie, beginner-ish question. When I think of Alsatian wines, what comes to mind is a slight bit of sweetness. Is that present in this one? Uh, this wine is dry. It's round yeah. in texture, but it's fermented dry. Okay. So no, no sweetness. Alsace is a tough one because you never, unless you know the very specific wine that you're opening, you never really know. Oh, interesting. What the producer has chosen to do. You can kind of figure it out based on producer philosophy and overall style, but they don't necessarily tell you what you're going to get. Am I right, though, that there are, there are definitely, maybe it's the more popular Alsatian wines. Totally right. Yeah. That, a yeah. lot of a lot of wines, Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, will often end up being uh, they'll leave residual sugar in there just to give the wines texture and a uh, fruity quality. Okay, but yeah, these these wines are dry. Okay, now tostada dish. So we've got fermented rhubarb. I'm looking back at Neil because yeah. I need to walk through again. We've got okay. rhubarb fermented with chili, so a bit smoky, yeah. a bit forest fiery, as that old menu description goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what's the rest of the dish? 
Spot prawns. Spot prawns, of course. Yeah, We're spot, spot prawn season. Spot prawn season. So uh, the tostadas are really cool. They are uh, heirloom corn tostadas made by uh, a chef named Israel who lives in Victoria now. Uh, chef Andrea got them a little while ago. We've been trying to figure out a way to use them up. What else is going to be? I haven't actually made it yet. So okay. tom- tomorrow <laughs> is the day that I'm going to figure out all the things on there. Probably some fresh spring radish. Uh, the salsa will be rhubarb, like the fermented rhubarb with moria chili. I might emulsify pumpkin seeds into it to kind of round it out and give it a little more creamy texture. The toastiness of the pumpkin seeds will kind of balance well with the sweetness of the spot prawn. And then you get the acid from the rhubarb and the smokiness and Big cavalcade of flavors, you know. (laughs) I look forward to trying it. And Peter, which of your 21 by the glass is going to work with that? We'll look look in inventory. I (laughs) got to take a look. Um, I'm thinking I have a I have a wine from Sicily uh, from a producer named Criante. They're a new, younger producer. They don't export a lot. They're from the north west corner of Sicily. Uh, it's a grape called Catarato, which traditionally was blended into Marsala. Uh, but younger producers are kind of making it into serious quality wine. And this wine has a bit of a spritz. It has a little bit of bitterness, which I think will kind of match the levels in the, like, I got to taste the fermented rhubarb, and it, I think it'll kind of reach that flavor a little bit. And it's quite a, it's like it, you think it's going to be a full-bodied wine, but it's not. It's kind of, it's a little less. So I think it'll be, it'll be all right to go with the spot prongs. But I don't know. I might have to taste this one. Uh, yeah, I'm a, yeah, we'll have to taste this one. We're definitely going to taste okay, it. All right. yeah. <laughs> okay, all to be revealed. All right, I want to back up now and, and talk a little bit more generally about what happens here at Gobo. And I'm going to obviously ask you, Neil, about the food and you, Peter, about the, about the drinks that go with it. But starting with the food... Neil, what, I mean, I guess I'm asking you, what's the philosophy behind the restaurant? But more practically, how does a dish come to be on the menu? Like, what, what drives your decision-making in putting a dish on the menu? And I, I think I know that a big part of that is the producers and seasonality. And Yeah, but, definitely, but. producers and seasonality. Um, a big factor for us, because we are such a tiny kitchen, we have two induction plates and a half convection oven. We don't have extraction, we don't have hood vents. So we cannot saute, smoke, grill, deep fry. Uh, so a big <laughs> many, consi- many of the things people consider cooking. Normally yeah. in kitchens, yes, <laughs> yeah. you have these things. So big considerations are what I'm actually allowed to do and what's not going to either like smoke the place out or... Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely challenging, uh, but it's it's a good challenge for me to kind of. You have to think outside the box a lot. I use a blowtorch a lot, right? And uh, I have now just as the weather is warming up, I'm starting to do fresh pasta again, which is nice. Uh, I tried to do it a couple times in the winter, but the humidity generated from a like pasta pot running the whole night would like the walls would literally be dripping. Which is not the best dining experience, experience. I don't think. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was just a bit too much. So, like, there are definitely a lot of limitations, and that goes into how we think about what we're going to do with dishes here. 
we're very fortunate because we're connected to Harvest and Burdock. If this was a standalone restaurant, I don't think it would be able to function as it does because uh, we wouldn't be able to get all of the small local seasonal produce that we do without having that Harvest connection. So Harvest is doing the weekly CSAs. They're ordering from lots of small farms all over the lower mainland in BC. Gobo as a restaurant, if it was a standalone, would not be able to make a single minimum order for any farm okay. because we do such a small amount of people every week. Uh, so I'm very lucky where I can ask Gabe, okay, which farms are you ordering from this week? I will uh, look at their fresh sheets and be like, can you add three pounds of this, maybe five pounds of this, two pounds of this? Like just just enough stuff that that I can use for one week. For one week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a friend who's a chef at a, another small wine bar called VV on Hastings. And he was asking me, like, how do you get all of these different farms produces and he's like i can only basically he can only choose one farm because right. you have to make the, the volume. because you have yeah. to make the minimum order yeah. and he can't like i'm very lucky to be able to get as many farms as i can here. as you as you do to pick yeah. from and the csa is a program where so gabe at uh harvest brings in a, a bunch of produce from these farmers yeah. divides it up into sort of weekly grocery orders yeah. that people can then partake in and, and cook it at home. Yeah, which is really awesome because yeah. just as I wouldn't be able to get all of these different farms produce, uh, your average customer would not be able to buy any of these things unless they went to the farmer's market every single Saturday. And even some of the things that Gabe can get are not necessarily at the farmer's market. Yeah. Yeah, like she's getting right now green garlic and uh, things from foragers, uh, fiddleheads, stuff like that, that you wouldn't really see that much of in any grocery store or farmer's market, which is very cool. It's very cool. So nice. Okay, Peter, the drink side of things. I'm asking mainly about about wine, but I want your thoughts on beer and, uh, you know, maybe some thoughts on zero proof. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the philosophy on what I'll call your side of the bar, even even though you guys are on the same side of the bar, your your half of the bar, is a little bit, it's very much in sync with what Neil is doing, but it's a little bit different. And to be less cryptic about that, you get your stuff or some of your stuff from further away. So am I right in that? And And if I am, and I think I am, why do you do that? Why do you source further away on the wine front than, than Neil does on the food front? Sure. That's kind of a, a, a new question, I guess, for the wine world in that, um, yeah, I source from all around the world, wherever I can for, for my wine. Uh, beer and other stuff is all very local. Um, my beer is a one mile beer, actually. The every everything from uh, for the lager that I have from Barnside and Delta is from one mile from their farm. Uh, they grow their own barley, they grow their own hops, they they culture their own yeast. Wow, um, which is super cool. I've never seen that before. But for wine, it's a little harder. I mean, I I, I actually love BC wine. I think there's a lot of cool things happening, but there's only so much you can do. I think for an interesting list. If you limit your, if you limit yourself to BC, you kind of have to limit yourself to BC, and I, it's less interesting for me as a professional, and I think less interesting for your guests as well. Tourists love it, so I will never not have BC wine on my list. But 
Um, I find a lot of the locals are already so familiar with BC wine already that it can be a little harder to sell to them. They're members of the wine club. They sure, often know they, more about the winery than, than I do. So they, they vacation in the Okanagan in the summer. Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of familiarity there. But for here, the idea of bringing in wines from around the world that reflect similar ideals as what we look for in our farmers. So organic, biodynamic uh, farming. The word natural gets thrown around a lot. And I'm still deciding as a professional what I think what what makes sense there's no definition for natural wine sometimes i think it goes a little too far and sometimes people who say they're natural may not be as natural as they claim to be uh so there's it's a spectrum um for sure and and give us just the real basics on what natural wine is and again from the newbie perspective what i think of when i think natural wine is just not zero intervention but less intervention so they're using either no or fewer sulfites and less chemicals and what you tell as a yeah as a base level you're looking at uh, wine that's been produced from purely grapes from sustainably farmed uh, vineyards at a minimum i think that's organic and it probably should go further than that um, and then limited intervention in the cellar so you're looking at no filtration no fining uh yeah, limited to no addition of sulfur, uh, sulfur dioxide as a preservative, and definitely no like no addition of acid, no reverse osmosis, no like trickery in the cellar. But yeah, sulfur being a big sticking point for some people, I would say what matters more is the the viticulture, not the the cellar management is a little bit different. You touched on an interesting point that echoes something I just heard from a chef in Haida Gwaii a few weeks ago, and it's the how you deal with the locals market and the tourist market. So we were just coming there, of course, as we are here, coming into the spring season, and he was excited about all of the stuff that was starting to come in. But he said, we have to do this dance between pleasing the locals, and particularly in the winter or you know non-summer months when it's basically all locals driven, and also pleasing the tourists and he said it's basically it's basically a bright line divide there because they're so remote and so the tourists want halibut and they want fiddleheads they want whatever is popping up in the environment at the moment and the locals because it's a small community and everybody's really well connected they've got a freezer full of halibut and they know somebody who goes to forge a fiddlehead so what they want is you know the duck breast that they remember having in vancouver or they want you know a steak something more something less local less so how do you guys navigate that balance or do you just make sure that you have something for everybody something for everybody is a dangerous path yes <laughs> for a 20 seat wine bar in chinatown in vancouver um and and i and i think someone in Haida Gwaii definitely has a much bigger challenge at managing that whereas here um, it was, it, we found more, I think it was last summer we were talking about, oh, like how much BC wine we had on the list and what we wanted that balance to be, because I only have, you know, a handful of selections when it comes down to it and they rotate all the time, but we had this slew of tourists as things started opening up, uh, in the, the fall before, um, like in sort of September, October in 2021, where we got all these people from Quebec and Ontario who were visiting, and that's all they wanted to do. They were like, you're, 
you're supposed to be a great wine bar in BC, in Vancouver. We want to see what do you think. So I had to act as an advocate for the local industry because that's what these people wanted. They came here specifically to try BC wine. You go, oh, okay, I have like two or three and they're right. delicious, but like, you know, I don't, I don't have, you know, 10 of them for you to try. So it, it's kind of a matter of like choosing very carefully who we want to represent and kind of put the best foot forward because they're, these are people who are visiting us. They saw us on the Canada's best list or something like that. They're here for that experience as opposed to our, our, our amazing regulars who live in the neighborhood and walk by every day and we know them by name. Like they're, they're looking for like the next wine that I pull from the Republic of Georgia or, you know, <laughs> direct from Tbilisi. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, I sold a lot of Georgian wine this year. It's yeah. amazing. I've heard it's amazing. Yeah. It's delicious. It's fantastic. Neil, same question. Challenges on the food side. Like in terms of like tourists versus locals, yeah. I if I'm being really honest, like I don't really think about that okay, too much. <laughs> I'm just, I just try to make good food and, and uh, hopefully everybody likes it. Um, always trying to use whatever's fresh in season and that I don't, I don't really consider like any guest that comes in. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me if they're local or if they're from somewhere else, like the food's always going to be the same. Like, yeah. It's yeah. going to be good, and it's going to be what you have that night anyway. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, in, in our email exchanges back and forth, I, I told you guys that this podcast, which sadly has wrapped up, but it's a, it was a Vegas-based podcast called Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone, and they, they have this segment where they ask their guests one blackmailable fact. And so what I want to hear from each of you, if you're willing to share, what's something you, Neil, like to eat, and you, Peter, like to drink that would not show up on the menu here at Bar Gobo? Uh, everything. Okay. Uh, everything. Okay. I, uh, awesome. That is an awesome answer. I have no shame in okay. food. I will eat anything and everything, almost, I would say, as long as it tastes good. That's so, nice. like, I'll eat McDonald's. I'll eat any fast food, pizza, doesn't matter. Like I appreciate food in all of its forms. In all of its in all its glory. Yeah. So you could probably name any sort of junk food, and I would be probably a fan on on board to have. Yeah. It. I, I didn't ask this question in this form, but when I was interviewing a, a, a pastry chef at this two star place in in Vegas, I, I just said, "Where do you go?" Because I was curious where the the chefs ate locally. I was yeah. hoping for you know some inside info that would send me to an off-strip place that would be really awesome. And he said his, his two picks were Taco Bell and <laughs> and In-N-Out. <laughs> I was like, right on. I mean, you can't go wrong. Yeah. In-N-Out. Yeah. 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 Get all supreme. the business. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Peter, same to you. Drinks-wise? Yeah. Ah, man. I, you know, it's funny because I, there's a lot of sommeliers who drink a lot of, like, Miller High Life or, yeah. uh, you know, what's the other one? Natty Ice in the States. I've never understood that. <laughs> never understood that ever in my life. I'm like, I like, I like beverage as a whole. So um, I don't know about the guilty pleasure thing because I'm not yeah. guilty about what, what I drink. Good for you. Maybe, yeah. maybe Coca-Cola. Everyone, yeah. Rare. I don't drink it all the time, but Coca-Cola after service, that is a perfect beverage. That is a nice drink. But, Miller uh, High Life is the champagne of beers. I hope you know that. <laughs> Says so right on the bottle. Right there on the bottle. 
I, it, that was what I drank after Winefest in 2020. So there's a picture of me with an actual king of champagne beside me from uh, Tatage, but no one will see that photo. And I have another highlight from my hand. So I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, man, guilty pleasures, a cold cider. But it has to be good cider. Right. Well, that's after not shit. But it's not guilty. No. I know. Yeah. See, okay, that's, that's the that's enough. the bad side. You know. That's yeah. I don't know. Well, let me. Ask, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask now. What are you seeing and making and serving on the zero proof side? And are mm-hmm. you seeing um, increasing interest in that? No. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, and maybe and maybe that's because people seek you out because you've got these great wines. This is yeah. It's I think it's kind of a catch twenty two situation because if you offer them, you might sell them, but. You know, we have a limited selection. I think they're good and they're adult-oriented, but we don't move a lot of them. And I've tasted a lot of the the there's there's more and more out there, more and more options. I have friends who run a great business based off of you know non-alcoholic uh, beverages, and I think they're doing an amazing job. But we put ourselves out there as a wine bar, and I think we just don't really get that. I mean, I I think we sold. 50 non-alcoholic beverages last year last total. year okay um, people are not and and yeah. and that's and that's fair we serve sparkling water delicious vancouver yeah. waters sure carbonated is. in-house some now. but um the uh and i think the wealth of options that are available to people is really cool and amazing but um non-alcoholic wine i won't unfortunately i won't offer that here out of like a you know, wine is naturally alcoholic, and I think when you apply reverse osmosis or dealkalization to remove the alcohol from the wine, you're fundamentally changing a product. Which that's just my personal opinion. There's other options out there that that could be had instead. I've I've had some of the the interesting proxies, yeah, and they're they're interesting, but they're, they're when it comes wine. down to it, they're yeah. and and they're literally vinegar yeah um which is cool they're interesting but they're also very expensive so to offer them you need to have a market because i wouldn't we would literally would lose money right by offering by offering okay fair enough now for people who haven't been and for me when i come back i'll throw this out to either both of you what what is there a best way to enjoy gobo or how do you Somebody sits down at the bar and it's their first time here. How, how do you explain what's going on and, and what they should think about and what they should order? I mean, so we, we switched in February to offering a prefix uh, menu here. So three courses, you get a selection of first and second course, and we send out a little dessert. I, you know, having dinner here, I think, is the best way to really see what we do. People, when we started offering that, people left even happier. They, they're making less choices but they really see the, the level of quality of food. And then alongside it, I offer pairings, but I would say just have a conversation with me or whoever else is working with me about what wines you like or what you might be into. And we have so much by the glass to offer that it can, you know, you can really explore the world of wine or the world of like what, what's kind of happening now and some really esoteric things and some really delicious things from our own backyard. And Neil, you're knocking out plates of food. What are you saying to the customers? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, with with the prefix, it's pretty easy, you know. Like we're only doing we we have some add-ons. So we have like burrata, um, oysters when they're in season, uh, selection of cheeses from Benton, which is 
always really nice um, caviar, which is excellent. Is that uh, Northern Divine? Yes. Yeah. yeah, Northern Divine. From the Sunshine Coast. Yes. yes. Yeah, really good. I really like the caviar dish. That's one of Chef Andrea's uh, dishes. The idea for it, so it's it's not a traditional caviar plates. It's served a couple of the traditional things. You get creme fraiche, you get chives. But instead of having something like brioche, uh, we're serving it with Japanese rice crackers, which we get a various selection from Fujio, which is on Clark and Hastings. Uh, that idea, I believe, I mean, you'd have to confirm this with Chef Andrea, that it spawned from a New Year's Eve at Burdock that I worked. One of our dishwashers had just come back from Japan and brought us a bunch of snacks. And uh, when New Year's Eve finished, we had a little bit of caviar left over, so we decided to start putting caviar on these various Japanese uh, crackers, and uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, it's like yeah. the old uh, Reese's peanut butter cup ad. You got chocolate on my peanut butter. You got peanut butter <laughs> on my chocolate. <laughs> so yeah, like that, that dish I think is really cool. Uh, in terms of the prefix, uh, we're only doing two starters and two mains. So really focusing in, making sure those are like really dialed in every week. Uh, they change... I have to ask Peter, I don't remember, but I change usually one to two dishes every one to two weeks, I would say, whether that's one of the main courses or one Sounds of the Sounds about right. Yeah. Desserts, we always try and serve two, which I think is kind of fun. Most people are just expecting one dessert, and there's they receive two small desserts. We just say there's one dessert, and then we bring out two. Yeah. It's a nice surprise. That's a very nice surprise. Um, yeah, I mean, come sit down and, and do the prefix, because that's... You're going to, especially, this is the best. If you do, if you come with one other person, then you can taste the entire prefix menu ah, if you're sharing. Right. And that's, that's the real move. That, that's, that's a good move. Yeah. And if you do the pairings, I'll split the pairings too, so you get to taste like five, six wines. With prefix. That's great. Okay. Uh, story time. I don't story know if you, time. story time. This is, this is really why I started the podcast. So can you pick either or both of you Pick a crazy story from service, from prep, from some customer interaction. Specifically here? Doesn't have to be. No, it could be any time in your, in your culinary career. What, I, what I'm hoping to share with people is stuff that customers don't see and don't know about. Uh, except, you know, unless you're a regular and you get to know the team really well and you might spend time at a place after hours. But if you're 99% of the customers who come in and you get the show, you get exactly what the restaurant is trying to convey that's wonderful but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes so that's tough that's a tough one i mean here you kind of do know what's going on behind the scenes because there's this is it like there's this one corner of the kitchen you can see everything that's happening there's no curtain there's no there's no curtain i think we get a lot of guests that especially guests that sit at the bar they can see kind of the entire kitchen which is what i don't know four square meters or something like that not very large they're always surprised at what we're able to do. In that space. In, that, in the space. They have to realize that, though. A lot of them don't realize it. They're like, your kitchen's like back behind there, right? right? Yeah. Like, no, we only have 400 square feet. Yeah. The kitchen is literally where those two guys are standing over in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> behind that's the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other side of that wall is a different business. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Peter and Neil, thank you for welcoming me into your small space where you make such incredible things. It was really a pleasure to catch up with you both. 
Honestly, if you have not been to Bargobo, don't wait. Even assuming I am biased, and I probably am, given how much I like these two guys and how much I respect every operation of Chef Andrea's, but even if I am biased, this place is absolutely worth your time. It is so good, so friendly, so welcoming, and so delicious. Sit at the bar, ask Peter about the wines, talk to Neil about the plates of food that are coming out, and savor it all. I am sure you will have a fantastic experience. Okay, I'm going to try to keep today's episode focused, but one housekeeping note, I have recently signed up to run the Rock and Roll Half Marathon at the end of February in 2023, and where else could I do that but the Las Vegas Strip. I will be joining others who are getting together for the 360 Vegas Winter Vacation. That is hosted by the amazing 360 Vegas podcast. And 360 Vegas Karen, who was my co-host on episode 55 of Chefdemony, Karen is going to be organizing the post-run dinner. So can't wait for that. Thank you for joining me here today for the audio tour of Bar Gobo. I really do appreciate you choosing to spend some time with me here on Chefdemony. If you're enjoying the show, I would super duper appreciate you leaving a written review on Apple Podcasts. Doing that not only warms my heart, it feeds the ever-important algorithm so that more food-loving people can discover the show. And if you'd like to participate in the show, please don't be shy if you've got a question or a comment, perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic idea do get in touch. You can find me on social media. I am at Cheftimony on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. On LinkedIn, just look for me under Graham McLennan. And of course, you can always send me an email, and those go to Graham at Cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for today. Thank you again for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Cheftimony.com.